0: our digital world is changing. As AI is becoming more intelligent and the lines between information and disinformation become more blurry, we all need to be vigilant in not only what we consume, but how we consume it. Meredith Broussard believes unbiased, meticulous journalism is one of the best ways to hold the powerful accountable.
1: I specialize in a kind of data journalism called algorithmic accountability reporting and that comes from the traditional function of the press uh, which is to say accountability uh, holding power accountable but in a world where algorithms are increasingly being used to make decisions on our behalf that accountability function has to transfer onto algorithms and their makers my journalistic outlook uh, is that algorithms uh, need to be held accountable just like power needs to be held accountable
0: The field of data journalism in particular could be especially important moving forward. Data journalists who can take their time and be methodical in their pursuit of the truth will help illuminate real issues in our society.
1: Uh, Data journalism of course is the practice of finding stories in numbers, using numbers to tell stories. Data journalism is a little more challenging uh, because you're doing math and you're writing at the same time. I've actually never had a problem finding students. Uh, My classes fill up every semester uh, because people are really interested in this subject. Uh, The students really understand that this is uh, a crucial issue that storytelling with data is something that happens not just inside journalism, but uh, in every field nowadays. Uh, So, one of the things I teach my students is uh, we do kind of advanced spreadsheet stuff uh, at the very beginning of class, which is actually the same uh, level of analysis that they do in business school. Right? So, if you are going to be an investigative reporter who is looking at company financial records, you need to know how to read financial records. Uh, so data training is a really essential part of the journalism school curriculum nowadays.
0: While Meredith sees new students interested in data journalism every year, it takes a skillful blend of data analysis and storytelling to really do the job well.
1: Uh, so algorithmic accountability journalists, what we do is sometimes we investigate black boxes. Sometimes what we do as algorithmic accountability journalist is Uh, We write our own code in order to investigate social phenomena. I am really enthusiastic about the profession, uh, and I think there are some really interesting stories uh, coming out of the algorithmic accountability world. Uh, One of the things that I do in the book is I collect uh, a lot of amazing journalism that's been done over the past couple of years, as well as some amazing scholarship uh, and put all of these stories together uh, so that people can understand the, the weight of this problem, the intersection of technology, of race, of gender, of disability. Uh, and it's going to take some really hard cultural conversations uh, to work our way through it.
0: This is the Ready Test, Go podcast brought to you by Applause. I'm David Cardy. Today's guest is data journalism advocate and author Meredith Broussard. Meredith is an associate professor at New York University's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute and research director at the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology. She is also an author. Her latest book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech, published in March. You know, digital quality means a lot of things. It means software testing. It means user experience and so much more that we talk about here on the podcast, but As Meredith writes about in her book, some of the issues that still plague us in society today can creep into product development. We're going to tackle some tough issues on today's podcast, so we simply ask that you come into this with an open mind and a desire to create software and digital products that work for all of your users, not just some of them. Okay, let's talk with Meredith. Meredith, congratulations on the book and thank you for bringing these issues to light. I thought it would be great to get into an excerpt from the introduction of your book, and it kind of reads as a thesis to me uh, for your book. So uh, would you mind reading that excerpt for us?
1: Sure. Digital technology is wonderful and world-changing. It is also racist, sexist, and ableist. For many years, we have focused on the positives about technology, pretending that the problems are only glitches. Calling something a glitch means it's a temporary blip, something unexpected but inconsequential. A glitch can be fixed. The biases embedded in technology are more than mere glitches. They're baked in from the beginning. They are structural biases, and they can't be addressed with a quick code update. It's time to address this issue head on, unflinchingly, taking advantage of everything we know about culture and how the biases of the real world take shape inside our computational systems. Only then can we begin the slow, painstaking process of accountability and
0: remediation. Yeah, you know, I, I I love that excerpt, Meredith, and I think it's a powerful call to action for tech leaders who might be listening to this podcast, right? So acknowledging that the answer is probably different depending on the business or the industry, what's a good first step to beginning to examine and, as you say, address these issues head on?
1: I mean, it's a it's a complicated issue, right? Uh, and I wish there were one answer. Uh, I mean, I wish I could wave a magic wand and say, all right, this is how you fix everything. Uh, But it took us 30 years to get into our current situation. uh, And so it's not going to be an easy fix. Uh, So I think the first step is adding more nuance to the way that we talk about technology. Uh, In that excerpt, I wrote about how several things are true about technology at the same time right it is terrific and it is also racist and sexist and ableist right both of those things are true human brands can hold multiple truths uh, at the same time computers can't right so that's really important to recognize uh, we do also need to I challenge an idea I call techno chauvinism, the idea that technological solutions are superior uh, or the idea that computers can solve every problem, because there are certain social problems that we can't code our way out of. Right. So all of that said, I where do we start in terms of fixing our code? Well, one place to start is context. It doesn't make any sense to say, all right, I'm going to regulate all AI everywhere throughout time because we don't really need to regulate all AI, we need to regulate some AI. And so context here is key. I really like the distinction that is made in the new EU AI regulation, the proposed AI regulation that is about to pass. Uh, and they divide AI into high risk and low risk uses based on context. right? So if we take facial recognition, for example, uh, I mentioned before that facial recognition is often used in policing, that it is biased against people with darker skin. Uh, It's better at recognizing men than recognizing women. Generally does not take trans and non-binary folks into account at all. It's a very fragile technology. It doesn't work as well as people imagine. Uh, But it is used in policing. And so facial recognition used in policing on real-time video feeds is going to misidentify people, uh, primarily uh, people say with darker skin, primarily women, primarily trans and non-binary folks, Uh, that is going to happen. And so that might be a high risk use of AI and under this EU regulation, that would have to be registered and monitored or perhaps it would be banned Right, but a low-risk use of facial recognition might be something like using facial recognition to unlock your phone. Uh, now, mine doesn't work half the time anyway. There is a passcode uh, that allows you to bypass the facial recognition. Uh, you know, to the best of my knowledge, those biometrics are not uh, going to a lot of harmful places. So you know, that's probably a low risk use of AI. So again, context is key. Uh, and we can start by attaching a use of AI to a particular context and then making a decision about how it gets used or what gets used in that context.
0: Right, and I wanna ask you more about facial recognition in just a little bit, but you mentioned the phrase techno chauvinism, which I believe you coined that phrase. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Great. So you you mentioned you discussed that in your previous book, and you discuss it in this one as well. Can you explain what techno chauvinism is and how it ultimately has an adverse effect not only on digital products and services, but potentially uh, a negative effect on society as well?
1: Yeah, techno chauvinism is a kind of bias. Uh, it's the sense that computers are superior. Uh, when we unpack that, we discover that uh what it's really saying is that the people who make computers are superior to others uh another uh, subtext there is that math is a superior method of problem solving than other methods uh and when we unpack that we realize oh yeah there are lots of ways of understanding the world math is one of them it's really great, but it's not inherently better than any others. Because what are computers when it comes right down to it? They're machines that do math. Uh, we tend to anthropomorphize them. Uh, we tend to uh, get really attached to our computers and our computing devices because we spend so much time with them. We trust, uh, entrust a lot of our the logistics of our lives to them, but ultimately it's just it's a it's a machine it's doing math it's a dumb brick uh, it's not your friend uh, so we need to challenge techno chauvinist ideas Uh, And when you do start challenging them, it becomes a little bit easier to spot the problems inside automated systems. I really like a frame that is given to us by Ruha Benjamin in her book Reese After Technology. And that's the idea that automated systems discriminate by default, right? And so a techno chauvinist might say, oh, automated systems are going to be More neutral are going to be more objective more unbiased they're going to be a better way of making decisions but if we uh if we back off of that if we say all right well automated systems are going to discriminate by default it becomes easier to see the problems now why do they discriminate by default well it's because of the way that they're built so the way we build ai systems or machine learning systems which are the uh the most common kinds of systems in use today uh is we build them the same way every time we take a whole bunch of data uh that is collected from the real world and we feed the data to the computer and we say computer make a model the computer says okay it makes a model that model it shows the mathematical patterns in the data and then it's very powerful you can use this model to make new decisions to make predictions to generate new text or new images uh these are you know very flexible functional powerful uh models but uh you know with great power comes great responsibility and we also uh have come to see that all of the problems of the real world all of the historical problems are embedded in the data that we use to train the machine learning systems right so some of the mathematical patterns are discriminatory because there's been discrimination in the world in the past, you know, we all know history. Like it's not a surprise that there's bias, that there's discrimination in the past. Uh, And so we just need to not assume that the automated systems are somehow going to be better because they're mathematical systems. Like they are socio-technical systems.
0: Right. And and to that point, you write quite a bit about AI and machine learning in the book and how ML models are typically and inaccurately described as a black box. The math behind those systems is complicated, but if you have access to all of the information, it's within our capability to understand why these why these models arrive at the conclusions that they do. So between this black box concept and maybe the scapegoating of insufficient or problematic training data, is there willful ignorance happening on the part of some tech leaders? And you know, how can we do a better job of maybe sourcing or validating better training data to feed these models?
1: Well, I think that I, I, I prefer not to assume malevolence. I, I prefer to assume that uh, developers are uh, are going about their day and trying to write good code and do their jobs honorably. I, I chalk a lot of these problems up to unconscious bias. Uh, we all have unconscious bias. Uh, we're all working on it. We're trying to become better people every day, uh, but we can't see our unconscious biases. And it's an inescapable fact that people embed uh, their own biases in the code that they create. So when you, are, uh, when you have code that's created by a small and homogeneous group of people, like we have in silicon valley uh, then the collective unconscious biases of those folks get embedded in the code right uh, so some there is definitely some willful ignorance happening uh but there is also some unconscious bias uh, and this is why we need more regulation Uh, There was an editorial in the New York Times recently by Lena Kahn, uh, the leader of the Federal Trade Commission, uh, where she wrote about how it's time to regulate AI. And she lays out a framework for regulating AI. And it starts with making sure that AI systems obey the existing laws of the world right? Existing laws and regulations. And I really like this uh, because we've been arguing for 30 years about what kind of new regulation we need for technology. Nobody's gotten anywhere really. So I think that a, a different approach uh, might be more effective. And that approach is just enforcing existing laws inside our technical systems.
0: Right, and to go back to the facial recognition topic, you know, I think it's safe to say you're critical or maybe skeptical of those high-risk applications of facial rec- facial recognition technology. Uh, you read in the book about research, and you mentioned it before, that shows facial recognition works more effectively in identifying light-skinned people, men as opposed to women, and that it commonly misgenders trans or non-binary people. Um, can you tell us more about the way that this technology tends to fail, and why it's particularly problematic in a law enforcement context.
1: So this goes back to uh, historical problems and the way that they get embedded in technological systems. Uh, So when we talk about today's technology, we tend to talk about it as if it is sprung from the head of Zeus, fully formed. Uh, It has not. uh, It comes from uh many many years of uh iterative development and it builds on previous uh previous work uh however when you have a system like that uh the sins of the past get embedded in systems unless you proactively uh kind of root them out so facial recognition uh, or com- facial recognition depends on computer vision technology computer vision technology depends on earlier uh, representational technology like color film, right? And color film uh, came after black and white film. So we can see uh, the history of sensing technology as a continuum, right? Well, with uh, color film, there is a very long history of representational racism in color film because Kodak, the company that pioneered color film i uh, did not represent an entire range of skin tones when they started selling color film uh, the way it worked was that you would uh, you would take your film into a local lab to be developed and the local lab had equipment that was uh, know that was either licensed by or provided by kodak the equipment had to be tuned uh, and kodak would send out these cards called shirley cards in order for local labs to tune their equipment to get the colors exactly right because there are there's a range of possible colors and they're called shirley cards because the first model on the card was a woman named shirley Uh, And Shirley uh, had very light skin. She was pictured with uh, some other, I think primary colored pillows. And so thousands of these cards were printed. They were sent to labs all over the country uh, or all over the world. And that was how the machines got tuned. Well, because the Shirley cards didn't have a range of Browns, the film developing and color photo printing machines did not uh, have good representations of brown colors. And so if your skin was darker than Shirley's skin You looked really muddy uh, In uh, in color photos now Kodak did uh, start to uh, Provide a wider range of skin tones uh, in their Shirley cards so that uh, labs could update their technology in the 1970s and You know, it's great that they did that, but the reason they did that is a little problematic. They didn't do it because they realized, oh yeah, we are uh, not serving uh, the majority of the world. Uh, They were doing this in response to uh, furniture manufacturers. So they were trying to get furniture manufacturers to switch over from black and white printing to color printing. And the furniture manufacturers said, well, our mahogany and walnut furniture, looks really muddy on, you know, in color film. And so we are not going to switch over unless you make this technology better. Right? So it was not about inclusivity. It was about capitalism. Now, we have this problem in uh camera technology well guess what in computer vision technology uh, there are sensing issues uh, in for example video game technology uh, video game sensors did not pick up on people with darker skin, especially in lower light conditions, they're better at uh, picking up on people with lighter skin, right? So then, what comes after video game technology? Well, it's facial recognition technology. Look, facial recognition technology has trouble. Uh, it's mostly tuned on people with lighter skin, right? So this is a this is a constant issue. I uh, the. Uh, The kind of blockbuster moment for facial recognition technology came with the publication of a paper called Gender Shades uh, by Joya Tim Timnit Gebru, Deb Raji, uh, and others. And what Gender Shades, you know, revealed uh, was bias in all of the major facial recognition technologies. People tend to imagine that tech is uh, is full of all of these startups and all of this wonderful diversity, but actually there's enormous consolidation in the tech industry. And there's only a couple of firms who are making all of the kind of big core technologies of our time.
0: Right. And to get to another example of algorithmic bias, your book is full of different examples like the uh, like the furniture example you just mentioned. Um, Academia is another area where we see this happen, right, with new examples emerging during the remote learning era of the pandemic. Bias has existed in education long before algorithms came into play, and it's a microcosm of many of the issues we see in our society today, right? Um, Amid the protests around algorithmic harms in academia, what is or should be done to improve these systems in the future?
1: So now we're back to the magic wand. I really wish I had a magic wand for education. Uh, I, would, uh, I would fix a lot of things. Uh, one of the situations that I wrote about in the book uh, is where algorithms were used to generate imaginary grades for real students. Uh, so I think a really good place to start is don't do that. Uh- <laughs> That was uh, that was a particularly egregious example. That was something that happened during the pandemic where the International Baccalaureate Organization, which is an organization that uh, awards a very prestigious uh, secondary high school diploma uh, globally, uh, the IB decided that they were not going to be able to hold in-person exams for their seniors. Uh, which makes a lot of sense because the pandemic was raging and it wasn't safe at that point to have a lot of people you know, in a small room for a very long period of time. Uh, this was pre-vaccine. Uh, and so it was a good decision to cancel the in-person exams, but IB decided that they were going to use an algorithm to predict the grades that the students would have gotten if they had taken the tests that didn't happen right which which sounds so absurd in retrospect but you know during the pandemic we all made some strange decisions you yeah. know i made a decision to write a book right uh and so i write about isabel castaneda who is a uh who at the time was a high school senior in colorado who was caught up in this mess because what the ib algorithm did is it predicted that kids from poorer schools would do badly on the tests, and it predicted that kids from wealthier schools would do well on the tests. And how uh, do things break down in education along racial lines uh, in terms of rich and poor schools? Well, the richer schools tend to be the whiter schools, the poorer schools tend to be the schools with more black and brown students. and If you have studied education statistics at all, uh, because again, what we're doing when we're doing this kind of algorithmic system, when we're doing machine learning, we're doing prediction is we're doing statistics, right? Uh, If you know anything about education statistics, you know that wealth is a predictor of educational success, right? Wealthier kids do better in school than poorer kids. So, you know, if we wanted to increase educational attainment in the United States, at least we would, uh, we would eliminate poverty, right? We and how do you eliminate poverty? You don't make an app. You give people more money. Like, it's pretty straightforward, right? So Isabel uh, is a heritage Spanish speaker, straight A student, multilingual, uh, just top of her class and this algorithm predicted that she would fail her Spanish exam, which is absurd. Right? So algorithms in education or ed tech in general, it does not work as well as people imagine. Uh, there's enormous amounts of waste going on. I we need to change our thinking around this uh, we need to do stuff like we need to audit education algorithms we need to change the purchasing methods at schools uh, because schools are often locked into these uh, vendor contracts uh, where they lean into using a particular technology not because it works really well but because they're stuck in a long-term software contract Uh, which of course generates a lot of waste of public funds. Uh, We just, we need change at every level, at the individual level, at the institutional level, and at the policy level.
0: Let's jump to accessibility and ableism. Uh, From your conversations with people with disabilities, you write that quote, today's tech is marvelously empowering until it isn't. Once you reach the outer limits of the tech's capacity, it becomes marginalizing," end quote. And it sounds like you're encouraged by some of the progress being made in designing accessible systems, but there's still plenty of work to be done, right? You explained a situation from a few years ago where you had a blind student sign up for a data visualization class you were teaching, and even the consultants at your school's disability services center were stumped by how to provide that learning experience, right? So where do we still struggle to enable everyone to use a product and how do some people with disabilities become marginalized in this regard? Uh,
1: so I, I think you've characterized the argument uh, that I make in that chapter well. Uh, technology has been terrific for increasing access, has been really good for increasing accessibility and there is still more work to be done uh, so I'm really grateful uh, to the, uh, the scholars and activists who shared their stories with me uh, so that I could learn more about disability. Uh, one of the really important things that uh, I learned from my research is that there isn't a one size fits all approach to disability. And so we need to listen to disabled people uh, about what they need. Uh, and that's where we should start when we're designing, uh, we should start with participatory design. Uh, so one of the things that uh, that I learned about was the concept of a disability dongle, right? and so this is something that a designer comes up with uh, and thinks that it's going to be uh, amazingly useful for people with disabilities, but it's really not. so a good example of this is a wheelchair that climbs stairs right there have been a lot of these invented over the years Uh, if you google stair climbing wheelchair you get dozens and dozens of different images Uh, and to a designer you know sometimes it sounds like a great idea but then often when the designers go out and you know present this to somebody who uses a wheelchair the wheelchair user will say yeah i i don't want that like, that's not, I, uh, that's not really what I need. That looks kind of scary. And, I, uh, you know, and like it might attack me. I uh, who knows? But really what I want is I want more ramps, more ramps and more elevators. And it's really clarifying, right? Like we don't need to over engineer solutions. We need to make sure there are ramps and elevators.
0: Now, for a lot of these problems we've discussed today, you've proposed a few ways to mitigate them. So I wanna ask you about two of them. You know, First, you write about the need for more public interest technology groups and initiatives, and you also are passionate about algorithmic auditing, uh, which has yielded some positive progress in software development as well. Can you tell us about how the, these two areas can help combat some of these algorithmic harms that we see in our day-to-day lives?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that because I, am, uh, I do end the book on a note of optimism. The book, book is not entirely a bummer. Uh, and so public interest technology and algorithmic auditing are the places that uh, make me most hopeful right now. Public interest technology is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's about making technology in the public interest. So sometimes uh, public interest technologists are, uh, are algorithmic accountability reporters, the, the folks who are opening up black boxes and discovering problems. Uh, and other times public interest technologists are uh, working on government technology to make it better uh so they're doing things like updating uh state employment websites so that when there is the next pandemic and millions of people are applying for unemployment benefits simultaneously the site won't go down right so these are infrastructural improvements the same way that we need to do infrastructure work on our roads and bridges and tunnels we also need to update and maintain and continuously improve our digital systems, right? Because digital systems are infrastructure. Uh, and so algorithmic auditing is uh, can be considered a kind of public interest technology. Uh, you can do auditing from the inside or from the outside. You can do it internally or externally. Uh, so external audits, I mentioned a couple times already, the Lighthouse Reports, Uh, investigation and the compass investigation are both examples of external audits where folks went in they did not have access to the uh, inner workings of the system at the time of its creation uh, but they figured out later what was going on inside these systems Uh, and an internal audit is something that you can do if you are inside a company where you can evaluate your systems for bias and then you can make any necessary changes i mean sometimes you're going to have to throw the system out because it's impossible to update it uh, but i uh, if you discover that you are using an automated system that has bias in it which ps if you are using an automated system, it has bias in it. Uh, when you discover this bias, uh, there are some mathematical methods that you can use to address it and remediate it. Right. So it's a hard conversation, though. Uh, people are sometimes reluctant to admit that these systems that they've invested millions of dollars in are flawed, right? So we just have to accept that these are going to be difficult conversations we have to go into it with humility uh, and with the understanding that yeah we made a thing and it does not work the way that we expected and we're going to have to do some remediation
0: and you should want it to work for everybody right i mean that only benefits the business benefits society in the long term yeah Okay, Meredith, in one sentence, what does digital quality mean to you?
1: Digital quality means creating systems that are inclusive, uh, that are audited uh, for bias and uh, are actually helping to make the
0: world better. I like it. What will digital experiences look like five years from now?
1: Five years from now, I think digital experiences are going to look largely the same as they do now. Uh, we're going to have different looking gadgets, but they're going to be
0: basically the same. Meredith, what's your favorite app to use in your downtime?
1: I. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I am pretty proud of the way that I have my calendar set up. I uh, have my whole family on a uh, on the same calendaring platform, and we have a family calendar, and then everybody has their individual calendars. And then I have a uh, calendar tool that I use for uh, making appointments with people. And it, it's not super sophisticated, but it does make my life easier. So I'm really delighted that that exists.
0: My calendar game could use an upgrade. I, I might have to follow up. All right, up we're gonna yeah, we're gonna talk me. about this later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like it. And and lastly, Meredith, uh, what's something that you are hopeful for?
1: Uh, I am really hopeful for uh, this administration's commitment to uh, law and order in the digital realm. Uh, I'm really enthusiastic about the uh, regulatory environment that says, let's enforce existing laws inside algorithmic systems. Uh, and that's going to mean things like people paying taxes and, uh, you know, white color crime being uh, being prosecuted in, uh, you know, inside social media companies. And I think that's going to make things a lot better.
0: Well, Meredith, this has been a really enlightening conversation. I just want to thank you not only for the work you're doing as an educator and as an author, but uh, for also taking the time to join us today. So thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure.
0: That was Meredith Broussard. Once again, her latest book is called More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender and Ability Bias in Tech. And you can find the link to the book in our podcast notes. Thanks to our producers, Joe Stella and Sam Susala, editor Megan Golic, and graphic designer Carly Searles. Go ahead and subscribe, drop a comment, leave a review, or let us know what you think of the podcast by emailing at, podcasts at applause.com We'll catch you next time.